2: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Just a quick heads up Out of the Shadows tell stories of people fleeing and living in sometimes violent environments.
3: If there's one thing to know about Eric Galindo, it's that he's mellowed out since the wild days of his youth. Back then, he was more interested in being a gangster than he was being a writer or storyteller. He's always been smart, a hella studious person, but contained the angst and anger of a young star aggressively emitting a gaseous light. Patty Rodriguez is the complete opposite. She was calm, observant, and ambitious, constantly dreaming of a life that she wanted. And all of that is in one photo with Patty smiling bigger than anyone may have ever smiled in a row of mostly frowning co-workers, and Eric smirking on his knees, flipping off the camera with both hands. Eric and Patty grew up in neighboring cities of southeast Los Angeles, but they didn't meet until they worked together, selling women's shoes at JCPenney in Downey. But just like all the stories in this podcast, Erica played a special role in their lives, It's actually the reason they met.
4: I'm Patty Rodriguez.
5: And I'm Eric Galindo. And this is Out of the Shadows, Children of 86.
4: Immigrants and their children have long lived in the shadows of America. Their destinies aren't just shaped by where they come from, but by their particular place in history.
5: In 1986, the lives of millions of immigrants and their children were changed by one lucky stroke of a pen, by an unlikely ally president ronald reagan this
4: podcast will examine the ripple effects the bill had on first generation kids of immigrants who are navigating intergenerational mobility and transforming the cultural landscape
5: this is an untold story of luck timing triumph opportunity survival and of course hope
4: A few years ago, I was feeling fortunate and started to think about how I got here. I started to ask myself all those questions. How did I come to this position? How did I get to be part of a hit national radio show, a publisher of children's books? Well, as it turns out, it had to do with this one bill, Urca, And this was history that we didn't even know. You know, 1986 wasn't that long ago. You'd think that a 30-year-old piece of legislation that changed so many immigrant lives would be treated as a historic landmark. IRCA was in part responsible for creating the Latino middle class. We're more essential than ever. It's why J-Lo and Shakira are headlining the Super Bowl. It's why we have big Hollywood productions like Coco. It's why I started my own company, Little Libros. Because I want my kids to grow up proud of being themselves, of being Latino. If I had grown up with fear constantly on my mind, thinking my parents wouldn't come home, like little Marcela Sanchez who wrote the letter to Reagan, I don't think it would have been possible. And don't get this wrong, Urca wasn't a handout. It's not like they gave our parents a million dollars and said, go be American. But as Sonia Santos puts it,
6: It's just permission to leave.
4: (laughs) If Sonia's family was forced to live in the shadows, her son Barney wouldn't have started his own business. If my parents or Eric's parents hadn't gotten Urca, we probably wouldn't have met, let alone gotten to do the work as storytellers we are so passionate about erica created a generation of immigrants who were fearless created a generation of children of immigrants who dare to be themselves unapologetically the course of my life barney's life and eric's life were all changed by a stack of papers and that's american history that's our history
5: there's a reason we start every episode of this podcast with a photo from our past to show the ways that our history is still breathing. It's real and experienced by real people. It's not as far removed as it so often seems. So we created a sonic photo album, infusing life into still images, giving you a glimpse of that history through the eyes of the people who lived it. In 1986, Even though URCA was meant to stop the flow of immigration, the numbers went way up immediately after it passed. The immigrant population went from about 4 million to about three times as many, to 11 million. Border patrol enforcement also went way up. The government spent close to a billion dollars on immigration enforcement at the time of URCA's passing in 1986. By 2012, It ballooned up to 12 billion. That's the thing about history. It isn't always about triumph. And after IRCA, immigration policy completely changed, and not for the better.
2: Out of the Shadows, we'll be right back.
0: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff.
5: To catch you up on the immigration policy that has happened since URCA, we brought along our resident historian and lead writer, Cesar Hernandez.
3: After 86, there were a series of immigration policies. So I'm going to go through a few of them to bring us, as Doc Brown would say, back to the future. Okay, so four years after URCA, George H.W. Bush built on it with the Immigration Act of 1990 allowing spouses and children of amnesty recipients to apply for permission to stay in the U.S. and receive work permits. It increased the cap to 700000 and granted temporary protected status, a.k.a. TPS, to immigrants fleeing violence from countries in armed conflicts and natural disasters. The takeaway here is that immigration was still a bipartisan effort, and the 1990 Act passed in Congress by a majority. But three events in the 90s solidified anti-immigration sentiments. The first was the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. The domestic terrorist attack was traced to Islamic fundamentalists as a backlash to American foreign policy and involvement in the Middle East.
11: A number of innocent people lost their lives. Hundreds were injured and thousands were struck with fear in their hearts when an explosion rocked the basement of the
3: World Trade Center. A year after that, in 1994, Prop 187 in California passed a piece of anti-immigration legislation that tried to limit undocumented folks' access to social services like public education and health care. Governor Pete Wilson ran on a re-election platform of anti-immigration and won. They keep coming,
8: two million illegal immigrants
3: in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to
0: pay billions to take care of them.
3: Though these sentiments wouldn't last very long, The courts ruled it unconstitutional. It heightened tensions and made immigration policy even more contentious. Then, in 95, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. The bombing in Oklahoma
11: City was
3: an attack on innocent children
11: and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it. And I will not
3: allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. According to the LA Times, these two attacks, happening only a few years apart, quote, heightened concerns about the nation's vulnerability to enemies here and abroad. All of that served as the context for passing the 1996 Immigration Act.
2: One of the consequences of URCA was this backlash against immigration and immigrants.
3: That's immigration and detention lawyer Arifa Raza.
2: So you see this xenophobic and sometimes racist backlash towards immigrant communities, which ultimately led to more restrictionist policies within immigration. So, you know, 10 years later from URCA being passed, you have an Immigration Act of 1996, which basically expanded who could be detained, so mandatory detention, and expanded what constituted deportable crimes. So all that is to say, ERCA was great in the sense that it provided legalization, but it created this cultural backlash.
3: By the dawn of the 21st century, terrorism had replaced communism as America's national anxiety fever dream. And in many people's eyes, the line between immigrants and terrorists was blurry and basically defined by skin color. After 9-11, two acts passed in 2002, one that increased border security budgets, staff, and power, and the Homeland Security Act, which created the powerful multi-pronged department of Homeland Security. In 2006, Congress passed the Secure Fence Act, which, as the name states, Expanded existing border walls, fences, and surveillance. Sound familiar? Listed together, these policies read like a greatest hits album. Three decades, a whole generation's worth of congressional immigration policies. The umbrella of anti-terror put a big damper on seeing immigrants
12: with humanity. I believe a lot of that has been fueled by the politics of race. Um, so that as the country's demography has changed, uh, people on the anti-immigrant side of the spectrum have become even um, uh,
3: more hardened in their views. That's Charles Kamasaki, who wrote a book about IRCA called Immigration Reform, The Corpse That Will Not Die.
12: There were pro-immigrant Democrats and anti-immigrant Democrats and pro-immigrant Republicans and anti-immigrant Republicans That's largely gone.
3: From that point on, immigration remained a partisan issue. And reforms reached a congressional stalemate. Even when things started to move, they moved slowly and are basically dead on arrival. And Kamasaki says a lot of that is by design. This really began in
12: the Gingrich era, where instead of Letting committees kind of work out what their bills would be like increasingly in the Gingrich era and under every speaker of the House since, and the same has happened on the Senate side. Decisions increasingly were made by the leadership in both houses.
3: No congressional legislation on immigration has made it through since. Only executive orders offering temporary solutions and further division on the issue.
0: I had a chance to talk to these six young people, or the Young Dreamers all across the country, uh, who wouldn't find it in their heart to say, these kids are American, just like us, and they belong here, and we want to do right by them. Uh, And so often in this immigration debate, it's an abstraction.
3: In 2012, Obama issues an executive order known as DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That defers deportation and gave temporary work permits to undocumented immigrants who were here since 2007. He expanded that order with DAPA, which extended those protections to the parents of naturalized immigrants or permanent residents.
8: For me, DACA is, it was a temporary fix. It was not resolving the issue.
3: Mesir Ureta Rivera was one of those DACA recipients.
8: Which is bigger than that, which is like a path to citizenship, to humanization, to treat our people like human beings, because every two years we have to justify who we are. And I think myself as a person, I am bigger than a piece of paper or a piece of plastic.
3: Growing up undocumented created an identity crisis for Masid.
8: So I think for, for a minute I forgot of what my identity was as a when you come to the U.S., there is this idea of, like, you need to assimilate, you only need to speak English, you need to be surrounded by this certain type of folk so you can get better access to certain things. But I lost who I, I was when I was a child and a teenager.
3: The worst of it came when he went to college and joined the tennis team.
8: But once I got to college, I experienced something that I thought i never experienced, which was... My tennis coach questioning my status for being Latinx, I was like, Why are you questioning who I am, right? And he started questioning a lot of students, and we were very, very scared. And that led me to get very, very involved with the movement and realize who I am as an undocumented individual.
3: Today, Mesid works with DACA students and reminds them of their humanity every day.
8: And I think. Myself, as a person, I am bigger than a piece of paper, or a piece of plastic. And that's what I remind my students every single
3: day. The irony surrounding DACA is that Obama's praise for the executive order. But his administration was notorious for deportation. Here's Professor Regina Langet from UC Santa Cruz.
13: It's important that we remember that Obama deported more people from the interior of the U.S. than anyone before him.
1: Even as we are a nation of immigrants we're also a nation of laws. Undocumented workers broke our immigration laws, and I believe that they must be held accountable,
3: especially those who may be dangerous. You hear that right there? Obama was following in a line of presidents almost echoing verbatim.
12: We are a nation of
3: immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws.
12: We're a nation of laws, and we must enforce our laws. We're also a nation of immigrants.
3: So even though immigration was increasingly partisan, the talking points and policies started to bleed into each other. But there was one motherfucker who was particularly evil. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their bills. Just kidding. We're not gonna play that stupid-ass fool on here. The man ran on a platform of anti-immigration and racism, demonizing most non-white people and promising a wall if he was elected. The Trump administration worked to undo the progress of URCA and previous policies. Early in his tenure, he tried to ban Muslims from entering the country, regressing to the era of Islamophobia reminiscent of the days after 9-11. But one of his most notorious immigration policies was zero tolerance at the borders. As early as 2017, there are reports that Trump administration officials were separating young children from their families. The following year, kids were put in shelters where they were put in metal cages. Many of those children came from Central America. In the following years, reports from media outlets estimate that over 5,000 families were ripped apart. Fast forward to 2021, the Biden administration started a task force addressing immigration issues after Trump's presidency. They've worked to reunite some of the families, but there's still thousands who have yet to be. That doesn't even get into the psychological scars and physical trauma these kids endured. Earlier this year, the National Immigrant Justice Center reported that families are still being separated and their claims for financial restitution are being dismissed. This is what Professor Langett has to say on the subject.
13: Forced family separation and deportation, that's the context that we're working under and that we need to, to hold on to and remember. So in terms of the families, we know that when people are deported from the interior of the U.S., it's mostly men who are deported. And that this has um, pretty negative effects on children, be those physical, psychological
5: or academic so we're back to the future. Thanks for breaking that down for us, Caesar. After the break, I'm gonna to talk to one of the few people in this country with the same kind of power former Senator Alan K. Simpson had when he helped get IRCA passed in 1986. I'm gonna ask current United States Senator Alex Padilla, who's been fighting in one way or another to get comprehensive immigration reform passed his entire career, where we are today.
2: Out of the Shadows, we'll be right back.
0: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter, Billy Halper. It's
7: just a shame, you know, that they took him from us.
0: Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip.
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Now back to the show.
5: All right, all right. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you do look like Canelo. (laughs) That's me talking to another son of immigrants, another Mexican-American L.A. kid who grew up taking full advantage of his parents obtaining green cards to build a better life not just for himself and his family, but for many others in this country. Senator Alex Padilla and I spoke over Zoom on the 10-year anniversary of DACA's passage, and just a few days after California voters sent him to a full term in the U.S. Senate.
6: Uh, And The very first bill I introduced, that I chose to introduce, was uh, my Citizenship for Essential Workers Act. Like, I've been a vocal advocate for immigration reform, protections for dreamers and farmworkers and others for many years. So I was very cognizant that I wasn't the first to introduce an immigration reform bill in recent years. I've been part of advocating for some of the more comprehensive bills that have passed in recent years, one house or the other, but not quite making it to the president's desk. And so when I came in, I figured, how can I add to this conversation and to the strategy? And I was inspired, frankly, by the experience we've all had through the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it was a tough, brutal couple of years, and it's still lingering. We saw the early days of the pandemic with, you know, the case rates and the deaths, frankly, disproportionately impacting communities of color and immigrant communities, frontline workers, people without the option of zooming it in from home. Right. People who work in the fields, people who work in meat processing plants, people who work in construction and transportation and obviously in the healthcare industry. And to learn that more than five million federally recognized essential workers are not just immigrants, they're undocumented immigrants. And to watch how they sacrifice and expose themselves, risk their health, that of their families to try to protect the rest of us and, and keep the economy moving. I mean, in my opinion, they earned a pathway to citizenship long before the COVID-19 pandemic, but especially during the pandemic, they've earned it. And that's what my bill sought to do, recognize them as one big group and legalize their status and put them on a pathway to citizenship because they've absolutely earned it. But what is the status of that bill now? So the status of the bill is, uh, you know, we're, we're still stuck in the in the Senate. Uh, The the House of Representatives has passed a number of uh, immigration reform bills, sort of piecemeal, uh, DREAMers and Promise Act. So that addresses DACA, other DREAMers and TPS holders. Uh, There's a separate Farm Workforce Modernization Act that's also been acted upon. Uh, But we're uh, trying to grind through the reality of the United States Senate. But we're also dealing with literally a 50-50 split Senate. So doing anything is hard right now. Spent a good chunk of last year trying to find common ground or trying to convince, frankly, a lot of my Republican colleagues. Because we don't just need 51 votes. We need 60 votes to get things done in the Senate. You know, earlier this year, we started uh, reaching back out, not just by myself, but with my colleagues in the Senate, Senator Menendez, Senator Cortez Masto, Lujan and others to implore the White House, President Biden to use his executive authorities to maybe strengthen DACA and even expand DACA protections, among other things. Let's expand the number of countries that can uh, benefit from TPS protections, et cetera. And we're still pushing them. Uh, but more recently, uh, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I've, I have renewed hope in uh, the legislative process. You know, I, uh, Among the committees I sit on is the Judiciary Committee. And I uh, chair the Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration. And we had a hearing a couple months ago on uh, a specific uh, category of documented dreamers. And in this hearing, I started hearing from my Republican colleagues, well, this is a no-brainer, we gotta fix this, we should be able to agree to that. And so that sort of reopened the door to conversations and negotiations about some of these uh, overdue uh, provisions to. Uh, update and modernize our immigration laws they keep wanting pointing back to but president biden has to get the border under control first so uh you know it's used as a pretexto way too often as an excuse to to not get to yes but we're trying to work through it well
5: what do you what do you think is like the the ideal scenario like what what would be the best outcome for the country and also for the dreamers for the daca recipients for tps recipients i mean it's just so many subcategories at this point that it's it's hard really to keep track of but i'm wondering like as a as a person who's who's fought for this for so long and a person who is you know writing the laws of this country like what is the the ideal scenario that you would hope for
6: this is personal for me, right? I'm a proud son of immigrants from Mexico. My father came uh, from the state of Jalisco. My mom uh, came from the state of Chihuahua in the 1960s. They met, they fell in love, they decided to get married, and they applied for green cards in that order. And, uh, you know, th- we were one of the lucky ones. Back then, it wasn't as, uh, uh, as, as random luck of the draw as it is today you know, arreglaron, as we say in Spanish, They so settled into the San Fernando Valley and started a family and have an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, and for my parents who worked hard uh, to provide us better opportunity, right? They didn't get a really a, a chance to get a good education in Mexico. They, didn't, they just didn't have that chance. My dad worked for 40 years as a short order cook, flipped a lot of pancakes and scrambled a lot of eggs in his life. Uh, and by the same 40 years, my mom worked cleaning houses. So because of their experience, They insisted that my brother, my sister and I do well in school and and, and get a college education. So I know how blessed and fortunate I am. I I believe every hardworking family, immigrant family in pursuit of their American dream deserves the same chance. So that's why I'm fighting so hard. You know, to answer your question, what's the ideal way forward? Well, the ideal way forward is this comprehensive reform that we know that we need. Uh, It's been passed recently in Congress. You know, as recently as 2013, the United States passed on an overwhelming bipartisan vote. At the time, the House of Representatives didn't take it up. There's been other measures that have passed the House, but have been tougher to pass in the Senate as the majority swings from Republican to Democrat. I mean, and and sadly, what's uh, the the consequence is millions of young people, millions and millions of families across the country are left in this limbo. And it's not just like the moral imperative. Uh, You know, every economist, every business leader is saying that we have a workforce shortage in America today. Well, surprise, surprise, you know, immigration is way down because of the prior administration. And we're not doing much to help, you know, people who are here working, paying taxes, you know, come out of the shadows to do a legalized status. So we're doing it to ourselves. So trying to make the case to my Republican colleagues to do the right thing by policy and the economy, you know, even if uh, your, your moral heartstrings uh, aren't convincing you. And, and so the other option is, well, can we negotiate at least some piecemeal wins here? I, I think we can't be uh, smarter about uh, you know, border safety. Uh, I think we do need to certainly modernize our asylum-seeking process. Uh, I remind everybody, it's people coming to the southern border, individuals or whole families seeking asylum in the United States. That is a legal right based on our federal law and international law. Uh, but it needs to be better. It needs to be more efficient. It needs to be more humane. Uh, and But we can't let that hold us up from doing right by the millions and millions of immigrants that have been here for years uh, helping uh, make our country strong. I mean,
5: sometimes, you know, we talk to a lot of people. Some of them feel very helpless. Some of them feel hopeful. I'm, I'm just wondering where you land on that.
6: Uh, no, look, I, I hear the frustration. I hear the fear. I feel it in my very own community, uh, amongst, uh, you know, friends and extended family. Uh, but we got to keep hope alive. I mean, if the day we lose hope, the day we give up, then for sure, it's not going to happen.
5: Man... Talking to Senator Padilla is low-key mind-blowing. There's a Mexican kid from LA in the U.S. Senate. I almost teared up talking to him. Because, yeah, I'm biased. I'm rooting for him to do big things, especially on immigration. And even though it may seem like we haven't progressed much further than IRCA, people like Padilla are proof that we are making inroads. It is
7: well known that Latinos are a large population in the United States, fast growing by latest census.
5: That's Dr. Marlene Orozco, the child of 86 who gave her dad her cap and gown when she graduated from Stanford.
7: But what is less well known is that Latinos are also starting businesses at a faster rate than all other demographic groups. In the last 10 years alone, the number of Latino business owners has grown 44 percent compared to just 3 percent for all others.
5: Marlene is now Associate Director of the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative.
7: Our initiative exists to research these trends. And in relation to that, we also have an executive education program that supports Latino entrepreneurs in the scaling of their business. There are over 800 alumni of this program, and together they generate a combined gross annual revenue of $5 billion. So this is a formidable group of Latino entrepreneurs and leaders across the country.
5: You know those tropes in Latino movies about the kid that goes to college? It's usually a triumphant climax about overcoming adversity. Well, it's probably the result of IRCA, which means that it's also probably the result of Reagan, which still blows my mind.
9: Their coming out of the shadows benefited their lives a lot.
5: That's Frank Bean, whose team conducted a study on legalization in 1,300 immigrant mixed-status families
9: we did some comparisons. The children of the ones who had legalized, whose parents had been able to come out of the shadows, did very well. Their kids graduated from high school, went on to college at rates that were similar to the general population. The ones whose parents had not been able to, uh, did much worse. The lack of societal membership in that legal sort of sense was a major impediment uh, for the lives of the migrants and their children.
5: Thinking about history as progress is a nice idea. But it's not the truth. The truth is that immigration and the status of those immigrants is still uncertain.
2: Out of the Shadows we will be right back.
10: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke.
4: Like we said in the beginning of this podcast, the way you see IRCA depends on your reality. The lingering question is Was IRCA a success? Well, Alan Simpson doesn't seem to think so.
8: It was a failure.
7: Well, of course it was. It never worked. We'd be doing something today.
4: (laughs) You see, for Simpson, IRCA was a failure because they removed the aspect of secure worker identification. And it didn't work to stop the flow of immigration. But for us and our reality, our parents were able to come out of the shadows. Even though he doesn't think it worked, he says he's still proud that 3 million immigrants found a path to legal status.
8: Sure, it did that. I was very proud of that. There were about 3 million people that came out of the darkness uh, under the program where we said they came here before this certain date. And went through the legalization process, not amnesty, and then went into a temporary program and then into a green card and then there's citizenship, you bet.
4: And he's not the only one who believes IRCA felt short. Education advocate Elmer Roldan thinks it was only a surface level solution.
11: So a lot more is owed to us than the uh, band-aid solutions like these uh, amnesties that are lauded as like great solutions that have been given to immigrants. But in reality, those are just Band-Aids that are thrown out there to silence any critics who refuse to see the truth that America is not only responsible for the conditions that they've created, but we deserve to receive the reparations for the conflicts that they've not only instigated, but have uh, benefited from.
4: URCA isn't perfect, but it was a result of compromise that gave a glimpse of
11: hope. I am hopeful that the fever that we're going through uh, as a country will break, not only on the issue of immigration, but on so many other fronts and the things that are pulling us away from each other.
4: Latino civil rights advocate Clarissa Martinez is one of those hopeful people.
11: We come together building on the very real notion that we have more in common, including our aspirations, our needs, and our dreams.
4: The idea of compromise today seems impossible. Even Simpson thinks there's no chance in hell it would pass today.
8: Are you kidding? (laughs) In this atmosphere, what I see every day, you, you must be joking. They don't, they don't, they identify each other as dirty, rotten, right-wing Republicans or filthy progressive lefts. And what the hell, what's the, what's the progress there? I'd be embarrassed to be in, in the U.S. Senate today.
11: When you're an advocate, hope has to be part of your DNA. Otherwise, you couldn't do this job.
4: But for Clarissa, hope is one of the most important parts of her work.
11: I am hopeful for a number of reasons. Um, I remember as an immigrant, I didn't necessarily know the full history of the ebbs and flow of how this country has experienced immigrants and immigration. And I remember my, my, the first time I had the chance to go to Ellis Island and walking through there and seeing newspaper headlines and comments about immigrants that were the same ones I was hearing at the time, but they were from a century before. And so one of the things that I see is that our country has a very tortured relationship with our immigration history, legacy, and DNA. Um, I think we uphold what immigrants contribute and mean to our country.
4: California State Representative Wendy Carrillo, who in a previous episode told us about her family's journey from El Salvador, also hangs on to hope. And for her, it comes from one of America's founding fathers.
13: And it's a love letter between John Adams and Abigail Adams. John Adams at the time was in France raising funds for the Revolutionary War. He had not become president yet. And he's in France and he writes this letter to his wife and he says, you know, the gardens of Versailles are beautiful and I wish that I had the time to explain them to you, but I can't because I have to get back to work and I must go study politics and war so that our sons have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy, so that their children have a right to study art and music. And every time I share that, like I get goosebumps because I believe that that is the promise of this nation that no matter where you come from, what you look like, what language you speak, or what your legal status is, this nation belongs to all of us, not just a few. One of us has to study war and politics. One has the opportunity to study something different and so on and so forth. And every generation makes a different contribution. The sacrifices of my parents have allowed for me to move in a different direction. It has allowed my sisters to move in a different direction and it would allow for generations after us to move in a different direction and to hopefully create a nation where our future is
4: brighter than our past. Imagine if we recognized the people who helped build this country into what we see now. IRCA wasn't a solution, because immigrants don't need to be solved. But it was a glimpse of potential, and its legacy lives on in the children of immigrants.
13: Hi, my name is Maria Perez. I was born in 1981 here in the United States. My parents, Ignacio and Maria Lopez, came to this country from Mexico as undocumented immigrants in the 70s. The legacy of that law passing has affected every member of our family. For my sister Alejandra and I being college graduates, working in the public sector, my sister Christina being a successful banker, my brother Ignacio being a small business owner, and grandchildren Alex graduating UC Berkeley and Caitlin attending UC Merced, my parents can proudly say that the American dream was obtained thanks to the Amnesty Act of 1986.
7: Clarissa Rodriguez from Bell, California. I was um, born in 1986. I am in my final semester of grad school where I would get my master in social work and my passion is to work with children and families. And I'm glad that I have my Mexican roots and I'm glad that I have my American roots. Hi, my name is Jacqueline Gutierrez. I feel that that gave me the opportunity to have a better education, for my parents to have a job, that they were legal, and it brought the American dream to their fingertips. My name is Laura. Um, and my mom's
13: name is Anna. We've been in the state since 1979.
2: My name is Celia Ramos, and I greatly contribute my success to my family being able to be granted that amnesty and raising us in the best of their
13: ability during that time.
7: Hi, my name is Maria, and what the amnesty program did for my mother was basically give her an opportunity to stay in this country and to continue to raise us. This is Sadie Rodriguez, and my family story begins with my mother, who came from El Salvador in the 70s. The, the benefit of the Amnesty in 86 obviously changed our entire family, um, allowing them the opportunity to be able to uh, go to school, get good jobs, This is Sylvia Fuentes from Aurora, Colorado. My mom specifically um, was able to take advantage of um, that amnesty bill, and she came from El Salvador fleeing the war. And um, so, I guess, grateful, but also very cognizant of the reason why um, that opportunity was extended to them.
12: My career has turned into something that's has been very rewarding. Since I got this this gift from the U.S. to become a citizen, I've actually give back now to small businesses and I help them grow and I provide financing, educate them on, on how to buy their own buildings, how to buy their own equipment, how to grow their companies.
4: It is incredible to hear all the voicemails we got, to read all the messages from people who are the backbone of this country.
5: Which brings us back to that photo at the top of the show. Everything you and I, Patty, have done has been influenced by, as you said, a stack of fucking papers recognizing if only for a moment that our parents deserved more. Our parents paid that forward to us. And it was life-changing. Because I don't think you and I would have ever met if it weren't for my dad. I was on a bad path in high school. I was more concerned with doing illegal shit than I was with going to school. My dad told me to get my shit together. He said he asked a friend for a favor, and he got me a job at the Stonewood Mall in Downey.
4: I was an intern working for free at the radio station. So right after high school to make some extra cash, I started working at the mall. I was still aimless, trying to navigate adulthood and figure myself out. And here comes this red-headed wannabe thug.
5: <laughs> My first day there was awful. My mind was stuck on trying to be a gangster, running around doing gangster shit.
4: When I first saw him, I thought he was this little cholito, he wore baggy clothes and baseball caps. He was a product of his environment, and we didn't really get along. He acted like he was too good to be there selling shoes with me. This was until we found out that we were both from the hood.
5: I felt like recognizing someone you knew in a past life.
4: And even though we were stuck in retail hell and I still didn't really know what to do with my life, I had dreams. Eric and I would walk into in and out across the street and talk about our plans to take over the world. It really felt like we balanced each other out. Sharing life with Eric no longer felt lonely. So then there's this photo of you being a desmadroso, and I think that I love it because it captures how far we've come. It's when we went to TGI Fridays with the entire JCPenney crew. Do you remember that, Eric?
5: I thought it was a cheesecake factory.
4: Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is, it was a memorable night. Eric was still stuck in his gangster ways, so he gets into an argument with the waiter about pasta or maybe it was about cheesecake. Anyway, it starts to escalate and the staff ends up asking us to leave. So we're all gathered outside and someone suggests we take a picture. We all huddled together to commemorate the night.
5: I love how most of the people we work with in this photo are frowning. Probably pissed because I ruined their night. <laughs> but off to the right is Patty with a bright smile like she just heard a hilarious joke and is trying her best to contain her laughter. And right in the middle, doing my best Tupac impression is me with two arms stretched flipping off the camera.
4: This photo's funny because it shows how different our energies are, almost like opposites. Eric is serious, like he's saying fuck you to the camera for asking him to smile. But my big smile is one of a person who just got her braces removed and wanted to show the world her straight teeth. Like a proud student getting an A in her report card. It's those two disparate energies that combine into force, and that is what we are now. A force. You're an award-winning writer, director, producer...
5: And you're a mom, the founder of a multi million dollar children's book company, a philanthropist. The city of LA named a day in your honor.
4: I know. It's so freaking crazy. This podcast started with a phone call that whether we like it or not, our lives were impacted by Reagan. It was a wild theory then, but now I believe that it's true.
5: The wild part is that if my dad didn't get his green card through URCA, he probably would have never got that factory job. He definitely wouldn't have moved us to Downing. I'd probably still be on a very destructive path. And I probably wouldn't have met Patty. And if I didn't meet Patty, you wouldn't be listening to this right now. So we have IRCA to thank for bringing us together. And that's just a taste of the possibilities that the bill created. It created a generation of Latinos like Patty and I. And it's probably the reason we're even friends.
4: We were two kids from similar areas and different backgrounds. And we had the space to be who we are, to screw up, to be proud, to dream of a life our parents couldn't. And all that came from as a result of our parents' legal status. Imagine how many more lives could be improved how much more we could contribute to the economy.
5: So I want you out there listening, especially to all the politicians and leaders who have reached out to us throughout the course of the podcast dropping, to think of this entire show, all these stories behind the photos, our story, as our plea for another comprehensive immigration reform. Just like Wendy and Clarissa, Patty and I believe in the promise of this country. And we are proof of the hope that URCA inspired.
4: I want to tell you one more story. My grandfather was the bracero who came to pick vegetables when the men in this country were at war. He'd pick tomatoes all day in the scorching heat. He didn't get paid a salary or hourly rate, no. They paid him for each box of tomatoes he filled. And he was only paid 10 cents per box. 10 fucking cents. Today, Little Libros is a multi-million dollar company a large portion of that money came from small community investments, most of which were Latinos and first-time investors. So when I say that a green card, a two-inch piece of plastic, means all the difference, I don't say that lightly. My abuelo, mi papa Miguel, got paid a fraction of a fraction for his work. But not anymore. If you want this box of tomatoes, I'll tell you one thing. It costs a lot fucking more than ten cents.
9: Los Caminos de la Vida
4: If you love this podcast, please help us
2: get the word out by following, rating, reviewing, and sharing it with your friends. Out of the Shadows is written by Cesar Hernandez. It's also written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by Patty Rodriguez and Eric Galindo. It's produced by Betsy Cardenas, Karen Lopez, and Gabby Watts. It's sound designed, mixed, and mastered by Jesse Neiswanger. Our studio engineer is Clay Hillenberg. Karen Garcia, that's me, is our announcer. Out of the Shadows is a production of Scene Miedo Productions and School of Humans, in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network. The podcast is also executive produced by Giselle Bances, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Chad Crowley. Our marketing and art team is led by Jasmine Mejia. Original music by A. Arenas. And if you loved his cover of Los Caminos de la Vida, this podcast theme song, you can listen to it on all music platforms. Historical audio for Out of the Shadows comes from the Reagan Presidential Library and the National Archives. Special thanks to Ian Vargas, Alex and Ollie, Caitlin Fetker, Gab Chabran, Daisy Church, Angel Lopez Galindo, Juliana Gamiz ryan gordon brian matheson claudia marticorena oscar ramirez john rodriguez juan rodriguez joshua sandoval eric sklar tony sorrentino and megan tan
4: So what do you think, Eric? Do you believe me now?
3: Yeah. Let's pitch it to Marvel.
4: Perfect. I already wrote a Hamilton style song. How do three million immigrant mojados, sons and daughters of others, frosting el grande, hiding in trunks, sleeping in bunks under the sun, saying goodbye?
0: iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.